0: Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm really glad that you've joined us on this Mardi Gras weekend. And as as, uh, Andrew said, I want to thank you for all the contributions of diapers and wipes Really amazing. A couple of you have asked, um, you know, how are they getting there? Well, they're, they're going on an 18-wheeler. An entire 18-wheeler has been filled, not with diapers, but with diapers and blankets and tents and coats and other supplies that'll be leaving tomorrow to go to the consulate in Houston by a local man who's from Turkey. And then um, it'll be put on a plane there And that's where we need your prayers. I think it's gonna be fine from here to Houston and Houston to Turkey, it's once it gets to Turkey. If you're listening to the news, you know that various government officials have stopped supplies from getting where they need and, and having lived through, if you remember it, Katrina. When the red tape brigade steps in, all kinds of fun things happen. So um, I'm hoping that uh, the Cajun Navy will show up in <laughs> in Turkey and take things into their own hands and make it happen. Hey, listen, one of the sad things about getting older is I wish some things were, like, larger in my life. Uh, some things were maybe smaller. Let me just give you two examples. I-, I wish the print was larger. Yeah, I remember seeing large print Bibles and thinking, what are they, blind? And uh, no, they're just older. And... Uh, <laughs> I really wish that that was, you know, I could have it. I like print, um, but I find myself digital everywhere because I can change the font size. I don't have to wear the glasses. What I wish was smaller is the mirrors in our home. You know, for some of you, that's not an issue. You still like a large, full-length mirror. As you get older, you just don't need all that reflection of you Um, because what you're looking at is just not that helpful. You know, you're just kind of like, mm-mm. Uh, that's all, all a mirror will do is kind of reflect the problem that is you. That's all it does. It doesn't, it doesn't really enhance it unless it's one of the funny mirrors, but you know, just your, I just need a little mirror. So as we dive into today, we're going to do something a little different. We're just going to look at two verses that end Romans five, I'm, I have a pretty bad habit of biting off more than I can chew when we go through the scriptures. But today I think we can get all this, uh, we can get all this in. And the reason we're just looking at the two verses is because we're going to try and answer a question that I think lots of Christians deal with um, and people deal with. And then that is, what does the Old Testament have to do with the New Testament? Or to say it differently is, what does the old covenant that God made with a particular people, the Israelites, have to do with the new covenant that's available to anyone and everyone everywhere? Or how do those two fit together? Or to say it in a sentence, what does law have to do with Grace. And so that's, uh, that's where we're going to go um, in your outline, when we're, we're discussing law and grace. But I want to I pray for us as we begin, because I'm hoping that the amazing grace of God would wash anew over you in a way that is very liberating. And I want to use the passage we started with um, for some guided prayer, That, if you'll allow me to lead us in. And this is from Psalm 86. So pray with me. We read, Incline your ear, O Lord. And answer us, for we are poor and needy. Lord, we are a people with great need. Would you hear and answer our humble prayer for your provision in our life? We come acknowledging both our need and our desperation for you to act in the places of our life that are really difficult. We read, Lord, preserve our life, for we are godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are our God. So, Lord, would you, would you reward our faithfulness to you? The commands that we have and keep and listen to as we read your word, would you work in our homes and our families and in our life? And we declare again, anew, that we trust in you. We read, Be gracious to us, O Lord. For you, for to you, we cry all day. Lord, we need your grace. We need it afresh today in our church and in our life. And would you gladden our souls, Lord, because we lift them up to you. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for what you will do and what you are doing in our midst. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The law and grace, the law and grace. In chapter five, the apostle Paul has taken time to kind of lay a foundation that gets us to this point. So here are our verses for today. They'll be on the screen behind you, very simple. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness, bringing to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The compelling, you might remember if you've been with us, Paul starts with Adam in chapter five. He goes, we're gonna talk about uh, the world from Adam to Jesus. And so right here, he's gonna slip in. He's gonna go, okay, what about the law? And we're gonna talk about what law and all that, but what about the law? It's the Old Testament law. Because you need to remember from Abraham until Moses, there was no law. That's 2,500 years. From Abraham until Jesus, approximately another 2,500 years, there is law. And so you could ask yourself, hey, why, why bring why, why add that to it? One theologian said it this way, It was a particular form of government for a particular people and accomplished a particular purpose. So what's the law, the law of Moses? Think Ten Commandments. Think the, you know, that's where Moses comes down from the mountain with the tablets and he brings the law of God from Mount Sinai and the people of Israel go, yes, that's what we're talking about. That, that brought that in. Now, when you look at the, when you look at it particularly, this is what you're going to find. It's, it's for a theocracy. That's where God is our king. God is our president. God is our prime minister. We don't have one now, but that's what it was for. So it's for a particular time and place. We'll see that the law had a beginning, and more importantly, it has an end. And so what constitutes this law of Moses? Let me summarize it in three parts. A moral law, which is to help us know what's right and wrong, and so it explains all that. A civil law that helps us understand what happens when you hit me on the highway with your donkey and I hit you with my donkey or my uh, the head of my axe comes off and hits you in the head and you die. What, what's the, what do the co- courts say about all that? And then a religious law. So moral, civil, and religious. And the religious law was, this is how you are to come to before me as the ruler of your people. This is how the priests are to dress and act and how they're to cleanse themselves. And this is what the people are to bring. And that's, that's all of the law. So there's three parts. And um, when you look at the New Testament, It kind of moves away from all of the little particulars and it says, let me help you understand a larger view of why it was, and it says it right there, it was brought in, it kind of came in beside what God was already doing in the world, what God was already doing in bringing his glory to the world, what God was already doing in saving people, it was brought in kind of beside it almost parenthetically because it has a beginning and an end. But when you go to the New Testament, you kind of get a bigger, you get a, a meta theme, if you will. This is, the, this is the purpose of the law. But this verse right here tells us the law was brought in so that, there's our purpose clause, so that sin, trespass might increase. Wow. Let's talk about that for a minute. That's us way to understand it. Here's an easy way to understand it. The more rules there are, the more rules there are to break. Anybody that's had two kids knows this. I, the reason I say two is because, by the time you've done, you know, you've had one for a while, you go, "We can't." As my wife used to say to me in disciplining our children, "You can't take everything away." With our teenagers, you have nothing. You cannot breathe. You cannot travel. You cannot because we don't. You can't do that. It's too much to enforce. Right? The more laws there are, the more laws there are to break. That's one way to look at it, just quantitatively. But there's a qualitative way to look at it that. The more God reveals Himself in His law, the more we realize how far we are from Him and how, how, how impossible it is to live up to His holy, righteous standard. Because His law is great. It's good. It reflects His character. And what we begin to realize is not only can we not do all of the things He's asked us to do, too many times we don't even want to. We don't even want to. What we realize is, is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is wicked and deceitful and beyond cure. Who can know it? The prophet asks. And then the Lord answers, I, the Lord, know the heart. I examine what's going on. This is deeply, deeply broken. So if you look at this, one thing you can conclude pretty quickly is the law is not to make us better people. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm better because I, I know where the boundaries are. No, it just kind of shows how bad you are at staying in the boundaries. Make sense? Doesn't doesn't help us. You might be able to check off a few things. I didn't do this. I did do that. I haven't done this for 30 days. I did do this for 45. It checks, checkbox Christianity never changes the heart. It just changes the behavior. And so it doesn't take us where I want to go. And secondly, or in a in a, in a kind of another way, if it doesn't, if it's not there to make us better, guess what? It's really not there to make us any worse. The mirrors in my house, they don't age me. They don't, they don't add to the complexion problems that I have. They don't give me skin cancer. The sun did that and my lack of attention to it. All right? The mirror just reflects it. You know? It just, that's all it does. And that's all the law does. It doesn't make us better. It doesn't make us worse. And as we read through the New Testament, there's another few more things we pick up about the law that are helpful. One, it's a it comes as a, as a whole unit. Right? It's like... If you break part of it, you break all of it. It's like you're on a, on a 10 mile, you're on a seven hour trip, let's say, in your car, and you get stopped for speeding. And say, I don't know, say you're in New Mexico, and the police officer, you know, they do what they do. Hey, do you know how fast you were going? And, no, 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 no you were speeding. And, but you say to them, hey, I know, but I did the speed limit in Texas. Right? I kept it perfect there. Yeah, that's, that doesn't matter. And in Louisiana, I was under the speed limit because the roads are horrible and you have to go slower. They're going to say, uh, so? Here's how James said it. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles just at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So we can't get too excited about having a few pet laws that we really are good at. Now, when I say laws, I'm going to mix my language a little bit. I'm not going to just refer to the Old Testament because there's an application here to just rules. People like rules, People like to keep rules. Religious people love rules. And the church will supply you with rules. Don't do this, do do that, you know. And so we can kind of ease into, you know, rule keeping. But this is talking about the Old Testament. And if you break it at one place, you, you've, you've fallen. Secondly, the law is going to arouse our pride. There's nothing like a great prohibition to kind of cause you to bow up. Painters used to say, Wet paint, don't touch. You don't tell me how to react to wet paint. I'm in charge of how I live and I react to wet paint. And I don't even think it's wet anymore. Now I was wrong. But you still don't get to tell me how to react to wet paint. So what do painters do now? They just put up wet paint. Fewer people touch wet paint signs. All right? But if you say don't touch, ooh. Here's how we'll see it in chapter 7 when we talk about this even more so. When we were controlled by the old nature, sinful desires were work within us. And the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. Don't, don't, don't. It just arouses my pride and I want to bow up against it. And I want to show you that I can indeed do everything you've asked me to do. And then... You keep reading. The Apostle Paul also wrote a letter to the Galatians in which he said, you know, the law is kind of like a tutor in school. They're going to help you understand the subject. And the subject is your brokenness. That's the subject. And the tutor is going to help you see that and actually guide you to Jesus. That's what the law is going to do. Here's how he says it in Galatians chapter 3. Before the coming of this faith, our faith in Christ, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith, that, has, uh, that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. What was the guardian teaching us? Hey, you just, you're, not, you're not good enough. You need to be humble and, and you need to lean into God's grace. That's what he was trying to teach us. God is holy and you're not. God is righteous and you're not. And so just lean into him rather than try to keep the law. Lean into this tutor, if you will, this guardian, and he's going to bring you right to Christ's feet. And you would think that, oh, okay, now that we see it, I'm going to trust. No, that's not what everybody does. So the law was given so that trespass could increase, but then something else happened. Look what it says. Back back to verse 20. Boom, boom, there we go. The law was brought in so that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Let's talk about grace for a second. What is it? It's God's unmerited favor to us. We didn't earn it. We can't earn it. It's a free gift given to us from God. It's unmerited. We don't deserve it at all. It's a free gift. Gift. I like to contrast it with some other biblical words. Judgment. Judgment is getting what you do deserve. You did something wrong, you deserve this. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Okay, so let's say we go to False River, this over Mardi Gras, and you don't know where to park because you're not from there. And you park your car in the wrong place and you get a ticket. And you're in Falls, you know, you're over in New Roads, so you got to go to the little courthouse. And you go in and you go, yeah, I'm, I'm from Baton Rouge. And the judge looks at you and says, hey, settle down. I got you. I'll pay the fine. And he comes down off the bench and he pays the ticket. And you're like, I didn't get, I, judgment is pay the ticket. Mercy is he pays the ticket. And then he hands you a king cake on the way out the door and says, enjoy the parade. That's, that's grace. You're like, who who, who is this guy? (laughs) Right? Uh, But it's so much greater than that. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Grace is one of those realities in Christianity that's going to push really hard against the worldview of self. Self Self-glory, self-achievement, self-worth. Grace is going to come in and say, you're getting something you don't deserve. It's not about you. It's about Jesus and what God has done in him. And if you see the trespass increase because of the increase in rules, here's a few ways that I've watched people respond to that. I've got more rules and the trespass increases. I'm gonna double down. I'm gonna double down on my efforts to keep all the rules. And I'm gonna really do well at some of them. And I'm actually gonna brag about the ones I do well about. We call these people legalists. They're going to earn their way to heaven because they're really perfect people. Maybe that's you, maybe left to yourself, you're kind of a closet legalist. There's a real problem with that, as we will go, grow to understand. One of the things that happens inevitably is pride begins to erupt in you, little bubbles at first and full on eruption. And then with that comes hypocrisy, because no one's perfect. So that leads to the second thing. When, When you don't embrace the increase of grace and you just leave it all to yourself, you're gonna try really hard, double down, or you may not double down on keeping the rules, you'll double down on a duplicitous life. You're gonna double down into hypocrisy. That means I'm gonna have my church life, And I have my church language and my church clothes, and I don't curse at church, and I do the things that we're supposed to do. And then I have my secret life or my other life. Sometimes there's three lives. And in the other life, well, my language changes, my clothes change, my posture change, the rules change, and I hang out maybe with some other hypocrites, because that's what they're called, right? The duplicitous life. And here's the amazing thing about living in hypocrisy. It takes an enormous amount of energy to keep those two worlds separate. May they never meet let alone mix. And sometimes we're okay with that, but most folks really despise hypocr- hypocrites, don't we? When it's in us. So some double down to keep the rules all the more when they don't accept the grace, the increase in grace. Some people double down and living a duplicitous life. And then other people, they try really hard and they get really tired. And you know what they do? They quit. And what they do today is they deconstruct. They deconstruct their faith. It used to be that the social pressure to leaving and abandoning your faith was so great, you would never do it, let alone talk about it. It used to be called apostasy. And today it's called deconstruction. And so now I'm being my true self because I can't keep the rules. And I would say this, many times it's because you've refused to embrace the increasing grace, the abounding grace of Christ. And you're just trying to do it on your own. Boy, is it exhausting to try to be perfect for even a minute. I can get tired thinking about it. So we've got the legalists, we've got the hypocrites, we've got the deconstructionists who take time to deconstruct their faith and they feel better about themselves and they make their faith look worse. But here's the truth about the grace of God. And you need to hear me clearly on this. The grace of God will confront any self designed religious system there is, it will force that worldview to be deconstructed. And actually the grace of God just played out in life will cause you to deconstruct self-promotion and self-religion of getting and working and keeping my way right with God. It's that radical, it's that amazing, it's that abundant. There's another group that looks at the increase in in, in um, uh, trespass and they go, you know what? I can't believe God would do this. He's just up there and he's, his whole purpose is to tell me when I've stepped out of line. And he's drawn a whole lot more lines. So I'm not even interested in him. Sometimes we call these folks atheists. Sometimes we call them agnostic. And maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you were in a sport where you had a coach that just never let up. All they did was tell you what you did wrong. And that was how they defined their existence, yelling and screaming, you're out of bounds, you're lazy, you're dead, or worse than a coach, maybe you have a parent that reared you in a way that they were so exacting, so demanding that you be perfect, that you never make a mistake, that you either just said, I'm done, and you run away, and you deconstruct, or you get angry and you hate your parents, or you learn to just live a duplicitous life. But to think that God's only there to point out our mistakes is to misunderstand God. Eugene Peterson, in his translation of the New Testament uh, in the message, translates John 3.17 this way. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. And this was God's plan all along that the guardian of the law would hold us and keep us aware of our own inability until someone could come and rescue us, the great Messiah, Jesus Christ. So there's a fifth response. It's a humble response. It's a response of, I can't, I don't want to, and when I try, I only exalt myself, not God. And so I realize how helpless I am, how broken I am, how deep my need is, Jesus called these people the poor in spirit. And this is what he said to them again from the message in Matthew's gospel. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and recover. you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay... Anything heavy or ill-fitting on you, keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. What a beautiful call. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy, and my yoke is light. Mm. But if you're going to embrace the abounding grace of God, you have to admit a few things. I can't. I can't do it. You have to admit... Even further, I don't want to do it. And as I said a minute ago, you have to kind of go, you know what, God, even when I try it, it becomes about me and not about you. Because you can't embrace the, the abounding grace of God and hold on to all of that. You have to put all that down so that both hands are free. Which leads us to our second point, abounding grace. Abounding grace. Back to verse 20. The law was brought in aside from all that God had been doing. So that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. We call it abounding, that's an older translation. I like that word. Abounding grace. It's overflowing. It's more than you can contain. You just there's not enough room for it. Like the van with the diapers. <laughs> just there's not enough room for it. It's just too much. And if there's an application that you need to know about the abounding grace of God, it's this. And some of you need to hear this so badly, but more than hear it, you need to believe it. You can't out the grace of God. That means if you're currently in a pit of sin where you feel slimy and totally unworthy, you are, and God offers you not judgment or mercy, but grace. And this is what makes Christianity radical, but only when we embrace the grace of God. When we take up arms and try to do it all ourselves, it just becomes another pride-producing, exhausting religion on the face of the planet. But when we realize that we can't outpace, outweigh with our sin the grace of God, when that becomes our reality, things really begin to change. Rebecca sang that beautiful song, Let us in that song today about amazing grace. The writer of that lyric is a man named John Newton, British man who was not only a slave trader, but was a slave himself. He wrote, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And he had plenty of reason to say that. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. He would become a Christian, and he would lead the, the English uh, parliament as a clergyman to fight and, and abolish slavery in England. We fought a br- brutal civil war over it. They took it up by law and changed their, their laws. He died, his mother died when he was seven, and she had quoted scripture to him. And being reared by other family members, he joined the British Navy, which was a good career for a young Brit, but he was a wild man and he wanted to party and live large. In his own words, he said, I went to Africa that I might sin to my fill. I don't know if you've ever had that thought when you've gone too far and then you just say to hell with it and you jump in both feet. That's what he did. He got there and got to know a Portuguese slave trader. The Portuguese slave trader had a harem of African women, the chief of which was brutally mean. And this Portuguese slave trader left, left John with this harem and she abused him. She made him grovel. She tied his hands behind his back and said, you can't use them. You have to pick up your food like a dog, only with your mouth. And if he ever tried, he was severely beaten. He lost weight, he almost died, he escaped made it to the coast where he built a fire as he saw a ship go by. And somebody came thinking he was selling ivory just to find out he wanted off of the continent of Africa. They brought him on the ship and found out he was trained as a navigator, made him first mate over time, but he still had that wild hair in him. The captain of that ship got off, went to land at another port, and John thought this is a perfect time to crack open all the rum on the ship. So he did. And he gave it to all the sailors until everyone on board was drunk, and mostly him. When the captain came back, he was so angry with John that he hit him so hard, he knocked him off the boat and left him in the water drunk to drown. Another seaman grabbed a harpoon, basically, and threw it and stuck it in his leg and hoisted him up. That still didn't get his attention, even though at the end of his life, there was a scar so big that he could put his fist in it. And on the way back to Britain, off the coast of Scotland, working the pumps of the ship to keep it afloat, when it's almost sinking, John Newton cried out. And God saved him. And on his epitaph, his final words, which he wrote himself, he said this. In evil, long I took delight. Unawed by shame and fear till a new object met my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my last breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins, his blood had spilt, and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave me that said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I died that you might live. When you have an encounter with the grace of God that's so overwhelming that you can only see your grace as small compared to its enormity, then you become the resounding voice for the abounding grace of God. And of course, this was his theme verse. He experienced it, and oh, we all need to experience it. We all need to experience it. He became a great preacher of grace because he understood the cost of what Jesus paid and how freely it was given to him. Some of you need to live anew in the grace of God. You have become sidelined by keep trying to keep the rules rather than humbling yourself and just saying, I don't want to, I can't, I need your mercy, I need your grace, and walking in what he supplies rather than determining to supply it yourself. And when we do, it spills over. Grace just spills over in our life. And that's our third point, grace in life. Romans chapter 5, verse 21 says this, it's a continuation. It's, we cut off mid-sentence. Grace is abounding so that, there's another purpose, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness and bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What he's saying here is simply this. In, earlier in verse 14, he said death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. And now he's saying sin reigns. What caused death to reign? It was sin reigning. It gave death its power. In verse 17, it says this. For by the trespass of one man, that was Adam, death reigned through that one man. So how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life? We reign in life. How is that so? Because grace reigns in righteousness. Grace feeds the righteousness of Christ, which we then believe in. How is it possible? It's all through the grace. It's through Jesus Christ. That's what makes it possible. And I want you to see this. Death reigned, past tense, so that grace might reign through righteousness. One is a stated fact. The other one is a beautiful possibility. What is the difference? Your faith in Jesus Christ means that grace might uh, reign through righteousness. And what is the end result? It is to bring us, to bring eternal life to us and bring us to eternal life. That's not just a duration of life. That's not just life in heaven. That's life now. It's a kind of life. It's a life that's established not on my righteousness, but it's on Christ's righteousness. And it says through Jesus Christ, and it ends with this phrase, our Lord. Our Lord. That's a personal uh, preposition. My Lord, our Lord. If you choose to reject the increasing grace of Christ that comes with the increasing trespass, you reject Christ. To reject grace is to reject Christ. That's how he operates. He operates through grace. To think otherwise is to make Christ nothing. Here's how Paul put it in Galatians 2, verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. For nothing. So I want to ask you a question, and I want to ask you to place yourself where you stand. I'm going to have some circles up here, and I want you to think, that's my circle. That's where I belong. That's my camp. So here they are. Let's hope it works. The first circle is, I stand here. I'm going to work my way to heaven. That's what the W stands for, my efforts to keep the rules. I'm going to keep the increase of transgression at bay because I'm going to do it all myself. I'm going to work my way to heaven. Here's the second one, Christ plus works. I'm gonna trust Christ, but I am gonna also work. So if you come from a Catholic background, I find lots of Catholics will put themselves right there. And here's the last one, Christ alone, Christ alone. So let's talk about what it means, what each means in relationship to Christ's death. The first one is that if I can get to heaven and I can make myself righteous, then Christ's death was completely unnecessary. He died, not for me, but it was pointless. The second one says this, Christ's death was disappointing. I remember telling this to a man probably in his 50s on the shores of the Amazon River through a translator. I drew this on the ground and he had put himself squarely there. And when I said the word disappointing and it got translated, he began to cry. He began to cry because the Jesus he loves, that, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. His death was sufficient. And if that's true, then I need to trust in Christ alone. And it's funny how we can move back functionally to a worldview that's here. We keep talking about worldview at the core of my being. I'm going to trust Christ, but I'm going to also do this through this. But what would happen to you? What would happen to your roommates? What would happen to your parenting? What would happen to your marriage? What would happen to our church? What would happen to our church community in Baton Rouge if we we stood on nothing but the sufficiency of Christ? I can tell you a few things that begin to happen. We begin to be more humble because I did nothing, could do nothing. And when looked when I looked in the mirror, all I saw was my bad and failing complexion and I knew that I needed help. So we become more humble. We become more gracious. We become more forgiving because we are forgiving. And it begins to change the way I relate and the patience that I have with one another and the way I parent and the way I and look to be a mother or a father, a wife or a husband. It begins to change everything. And what slowly builds up in my life is joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self control because I'm not trusting in my abilities to do things. I'm trusting in what Christ has done for me and I'm leaning completely and totally on that. Do you see the difference? It's enormous. It's absolutely enormous. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, my Lord, your Lord. If you find yourself here, let me invite you over here. If you find yourself in the middle, let me invite you over here. And you say, well, Kevin, what about good works? I mean, isn't Christ supposed to change me? Yes. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. Ephesians two ten. To ten, the next verse said we are, we are God's masterpiece. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's after we've become a Christian to, good work, to do good works. They're there, but they come as a thank you life. They don't come as a have-to life. They come out of a thank you life, not I, I'm going to work my way to heaven. They're there. But what about the standard, Kevin? What if there, you're saying there's no standard? Oh, no, I'm not saying that. Our standard is Christ. That's our standard. And we're to be like him and live like him. And when he's our standard, we will be com- continually reminded of our shortcoming, will we not? But here's what happens. When the standard is wrong, some rule that we create or that is created for us, then we will, we, we're going to get off the rails. When the power to pursue it is wrong, we're gonna get off the rails. If it's all up to me, it's gonna end in pride or hypocrisy. And if the motivation is wrong, we're gonna get off the rails. If I'm trying to do it for self-motivation or to prove something. But when the object is correct and it's Christ Jesus, and the motivation is correct and it's a love for God, and the power is there and it's from God, then what I've done is I've hidden myself in the sufficiency of Christ and asked him to produce in me the life that he wants. And chapter five ends with this crescendo. And who is this crescendo? It's Jesus. When I reject the increasing grace of God, I promote myself. I get larger, Christ gets smaller. When I embrace the abounding grace of God in my life, he gets larger and I get smaller. I have nothing to brag about. I have nothing to boast about, but my own weakness As the Apostle Paul was told by God, my strength, Paul, is going to be made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. And therefore, Paul says, I boast all the more in my weakness, because then Christ is going to be shown. As we sang, we have this treasure, this salvation in jars of clay, so that the all-surpassing power of God may be evident in ourself. It's from him. It's of him. It's for him. And it results in his glory. All that's not in my notes, so you have to excuse me. I just kind of. Here's my deepest prayer for you. That you'll be knocked over by the grace of God. That it will dumbfound you. And that you will find yourself running back to it over and over again. Over and over again. And in doing so, that you will become more like Christ. As his righteousness is available to you. And then you'll say everything that happens in my life that's of any value is through Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so very much for the grace of God, for your grace to us through Jesus Christ. It's so easy to misunderstand you at times, and I don't know why, but you were so gracious to the people of Israel leading them, rescuing them, redeeming them, being patient with them. And while I can't fully understand all the reasons for the law, you tell us many, and they're to help us understand our deep, deep need for you, and you then provide it through Jesus Christ, how gracious you are. When you could demand justice, when you could offer mercy, and still you offer us grace through Jesus. So may he be the center of our life. May he be the center of our homes. May he be preeminent in our parenting. May he be the source of strength in our marriage. May he be the head of our church. And may he be king of our kingdom. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.